Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. The white shark, the great white shark, has landed. Greg Norman, founder of the Greg Norman Company in West Palm Beach, has come to our cold little studio uh, here in New York studio, uh, New York City. Greg, we're so happy to have you. Uh, today, you announced a couple of partnerships, your company, uh, one with Verizon, and I want to start with the one with Verizon. Uh, it is seeking to modernize golf courses in the way that they are designed. Um, can you just describe a little bit about what this agreement really means? Well, let me just touch on the what you just asked me then about modernizing golf courses. <clears throat> when you look at the golf course design business, uh, it's been pretty much the same cookie-cutter standard for generations and generations. What Verizon has done through their IoT platform is, for example, like smart cities. Um, you can learn a lot of things about a lot of individuals and about energy savings by being very, very smart. I actually think that technology works brilliantly in the golf course design business, it creates efficiencies in maintenance, it creates efficiencies in sustainability. So you make these golf courses smart. And how do you make them smart? Is through connectivity. And their ag tech platform is the, it was really the reason why I, I fell in love with it when I saw what they were doing with the, the vineyards and, and, and wine districts. And it, it's an automatic flow over into the golf course design business. So just on that one platform alone wasn't the reason why I signed up with Verizon or partnered with Verizon. It was because we recognized a space in the golf industry um, that had never been, not taken advantage of, had never been utilized before. The golf industry has gone backwards in the last decade from 30 million golfers in the U.S. down about 25, maybe, maybe even less, 24-plus million. And um, so how do we entice these people back to the game? Well, okay, so just to put this into perspective, you have more than 100 Greg Norman-designed golf courses around the world, uh, and, and the sort of smart golf courses that Verizon could help plan uh, would, as you were saying, would drive efficiency in course design, maintenance, and sustainability. When you talk about modernizing a golf course, you have to think there still are so many courses that don't allow you to even have your cell phone with you, let alone on. So, I mean, when you talk about connectivity and golf courses, mm -hmm. it seems like something that uh, doesn't jive so well. No, that's true. There, are, there is going to be a um, a segment of the market, which is some golf, golf courses will not allow that to happen. I get that. I understand it. But how do you grow something? How do you how do you reach down to the millennials who have walked away from the game of golf basically, and how do you bring them back? You bring them back with their devices connectivity, right? Every second you're awake, you have a device in your hand, right? We all do. We're all sitting there. We all look at it. We all play with it, whether it's emails, texting, yada yada yada. So at the same time, you have the opportunity of playing your music there. So if a kid wants to go to the golf course and experience some fun times with his other millennial friends, why not let him play music? Why not let him be connected to a device? Do you, do you let uh, people play music on your golf courses? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I have a, a very, very uh, well-known sports figure, probably the number one known sports figure in the United States, at the golf course that I designed and built in South Florida. He'll play in a sixum 
like four golf carts and four different individuals with music blaring. What, what kind of music? What are they listening whatever, to? Whatever, whatever they want to listen to. It doesn't really matter. Do, do people but, get <clears throat> mad at each other? No, look, I think it's great. I've played a golf course in the Bahamas barefoot, no shirt on, playing music. And drinking margaritas, yeah. by the way. <laughs> well, Greg Jarrett in our Flavor uh, <laughs> so, was wondering. He said, ask him, what should I drink while I golf? Uh, so there you go. Margaritas is the answer. Uh, just talking about expanding golf courses, which areas around the world, and even in the mm-hmm. U.S., do you see as uh, the most ripe for uh, new golf courses and expansion in, of your business? That's a great question. Take a, a country like Japan, for example. Japan has no more room for golf. They have 2,500 golf clubs. And within a golf club, there could be 18 holes, 36 holes, 50 holes. They have no room to expand because the cost of building a golf course in Japan on the side of the mountains is is too prohibitive. Then you go into places like Mexico, for example. Mexico is a booming market for golf. It's a des- it's becoming a golf destination. Now, I've been going building golf courses down there for 24, 25 years, and it's just increasing, increasing, increasing. Take the Middle East. I've built golf courses in Oman. I've built golf courses in Jordan. We're going to open up the first 18-hole golf course in Jordan. People go, Jordan? You know, and uh, all of a sudden the golf industry is spreading their wings. Here in the United States, we're starting to see golf get a little bit more energy about it. Why? People are getting a little bit more disposable income in their pocket. So therefore they want to go out and enjoy the hobbies they do. Right. And on top of that, it's um, it's – the the housing market's pretty much bottomed out, so people are going to look for you know golf course residential communities coming online in the next three to four years, and obviously the 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 it's a you know, the present today is very much more pro business and pro development than the past one has been. Greg Norman, thank you so much for joining us. I should mention that not only uh, do you have this arrangement with Verizon, but also uh, you announced today that you have an agreement with Authentic Brands Group, uh, which is an owner of a global portfolio of fashion, sports, celebrity, and entertainment brands. Uh, You're going to be working on managing your brand. So congratulations to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Definitely fascinating to think of how different golf would be if people were driving around carts, blaring music, and drinking margaritas. But perhaps that will be the future as millennials get brought into the fold. Thank you so much. Greg Norman is founder of the Greg Norman Company in West Palm Beach. I am thrilled to introduce Kathleen Gaffney. She is a giant in the Bond world. She is co-director of Diversified Fixed Income at Eaton Vance, which oversees $300 billion in assets and is based in Boston, but she graces us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Kathleen, so nice to see you. Uh, I want to start with how investors remain flexible in the current environment. We were just talking about how uh, it is undergoing so much change, both on an economic and political level uh, in the U.S. and globally. So uh, you were saying flexibility is particularly important. How do you remain flexible? I think one of the best ways to remain flexible is keeping some dry powder, having some cash right now makes an awful lot of sense. There just there isn't a tremendous amount of value out there. Uh, We're going through a period where the central banks are going to be handing over, passing the baton to the politicians. Uh, And so that makes for uh, a very interesting environment. Um, QE took everything that was risk-oriented 
uh, to levels that we haven't seen in a long time. So there's not a lot of value, but the fundamentals are not bad. So it's a good time to ferret around for good long-term opportunities and have some cash for when the volatility picks up, because it certainly will. Have your cash allocations been going up in your funds? We've been holding it rather steady at around 10% or so. Uh, Which is pretty high on average. Cause on average, yeah. two, to, two to five would be more of a normal level. Uh, but that 10% gives us that dry powder so that if there is a reaction in the market, and we had a little bit of risk off last week, um, that we're able to take advantage of it. But we're being patient about deploying that cash. It's not just every sell-off that we're finding great opportunities. Um, we're we're taking our time. You know, I was looking at one fund that you helped manage, the Eaton Vance Multi-Sector Income Fund, which has performed better than 99% of its peers, according to Bloomberg uh, data over the past uh, year to date, as well as the past three years. So um, I was looking at some of the allocations. It looks like energy has contribu- contributed to some of those gains. Um, Going forward, you're talking about looking for those ferreting around for those longer term opportunities. Mm -hmm. Where are they? Uh, Excellent, excellent question, because I think what what I'm excited about is that with multi-sector, we do have that flexibility to look into areas such as emerging markets. Uh, Also with currency, credit is a big component as well. But I'm so glad not to be tied to a specific benchmark because then I can avoid the expensive securities because I don't need to own them. So I can own exactly what I think is going to generate good total return. So it was interesting that you say that because Carl Eichstead, who is a bond fund manager at Western Asset Management, came on yesterday and he said that there's been sort of this recession going through different industries in uh, the bond markets. He says that the next hit could be in telecommunications uh, because some of the big behemoths have levered up so much. We're talking AT&T, we're talking Verizon. Do you agree with him? Uh, I think that that's quite possible because you do have an industry that is under pressure in terms of pricing. There's not a lot of flexibility in terms of what they can charge consumers. And you've got a lot of different technologies going on that are competing in the same areas. So it's ripe for some kind of uh, uh, switch or transition to a new technology. So I can see that they've been made that we've seen some acquisitions. And yes, the leverage is is going up at a time when if you can't grow out of it, or uh, receive better pricing, it's going to be challenging. So are you avoiding those bonds too, AT&T and Verizon? Uh, They don't offer, they definitely do not offer a lot of value. So we have no exposure there. Um, One other thing, you were talking about emerging markets, and we've seen a lot of new issuance from a lot of uh, developing markets in the dollar bond market. Um, There was news over uh, the past few days that Papua New Guinea, one of the weakest uh, Asian economies, is planning its debut issuance, $500 million uh, in dollar-denominated debt. Does this concern you at all? Uh, It does a little bit because it's not as if emerging markets is the place to be. You really have to be very selective. And it was interesting to note that this issuance, the supply that we started to see, happened at the beginning of the year with a big wave of it coming just prior to the inauguration. So I think there was a a sense that 
uh, some of these issuers, countries and companies, wanted to get in ahead of the new administration in case there was going to be volatility. But actually what we've seen is a much brighter global growth story and less of what we were most afraid about in terms of protectionism with the new administration. And so there there are some really positive stories. In fact, I'd almost say that emerging markets are going more mainstream and offer better upside than the developed world. We're really struggling to get our act together in terms of handling the politics and getting growth going. Uh, Which three countries do you think offer the greatest promise in emerging markets? Mexico, Brazil, and India. And then going back to what you were initially saying about this transition from monetary policy to fiscal policy, uh, do you think that President Trump has enough political will to put forward his $1 trillion infrastructure spending plan? And if he doesn't give some kind of fiscal stimulus in that scale, will we see uh, some kind of retraction, some kind of like, you know, retracement in the the stock and bond markets? Well, my thoughts about what the new administration can do – Um, infrastructure is something that the market has already started to price in. And it does seem that that would be a good way to get uh, folks at work, the jobs that he so often talks about. Uh, I think prior to the election, there really was a mandate coming from the country to get growth and jobs going. Um, So that is out there and it needs to be addressed. The challenge is going to be how do we pay for it? Uh, with the uh, failure of the health care to repeal and replace, that was going to be some savings. And the other sources to help out with paying for the infrastructure are not as positive for the economy. So I think that's going to struggle. But I do think there's uh, momentum on both sides of the aisle to get infrastructure going. Real quick, 20 seconds. What's the weakest part of credit markets right now? Oh, uh, great question. I would say high yield. Um, Both investment grade and high yield look expensive. In the U.S.? In the U.S., but I do think that high yield has become a lot more rate sensitive. And for that reason, you've got folks who have shortened up duration-wise and aren't prepared for what uh, kind of downside risk exists there. Kathleen Gaffney, come back anytime. Always a thrill to speak with you. Kathleen Gaffney, co-director of Diversified Fixed Income at Eaton Vance, which oversees $300 billion. Well, we heard a lot about the company Carrier, which makes heaters uh, and is part of United Technology Companies. Uh, we heard a lot about it, or United Technology Corporation, I should say. Uh, we heard a lot about it last year when President Trump touted his plan to save uh, almost a thousand jobs at a plant in Indianapolis. But since then, Carrier could kind of be seen as a small lens into a very big issue of globalization and the tensions that have emerged. Brian Gruley, a Businessweek reporter, highlighted some of these in a recent Businessweek piece that is really terrific. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. I just want to start with uh, what has happened since President Trump did uh, help negotiate this deal to keep certain jobs in the U.S. uh, for a carrier. The main thing is uh, the plant continues to churn out 10,000 
furnaces, gas furnaces, and their electric cousins, fan coils, a day. Um, but uh, at the same time, they're moving some of the fan coil production. It's essentially two assembly lines to Mexico, and that will result in the loss of 500-some jobs, while another 700 to 750 will remain in Indianapolis, um, uh, building uh, gas furnaces for uh, quite some time, and, and uh, United Technologies will be uh, uh, investing about $16 million in upgrading that plant, including some automation. Brian, did you spend time in Indianapolis when you were writing the story? I did. Uh, a couple times I was down there. It's and a nice town. <laughs> what was the mood like among some of the factory workers uh, that you spoke with? Did they seem to be less angry about some of the shifts that yes. uh, President I, Trump I, was talking about? Well, I think um, certainly they would rather have their jobs than not. Some of them were of an age where they decided, you know, there's there's been a, a buyout of sorts negotiated, so they thought, I'm going to move on. Um, some were going to take the money and, and go, uh, thinking they might get uh, fired anyway. And um, there were some who were keeping their jobs. I remember one I spoke with who said, I'm happy for the people who keep their jobs. I'm happy to have my job, but it's not just about me and the people who kept them. It's about all of us, and that just the whole thing just makes me sad. Yeah, well, I, Brian, I thought that your story was really compelling because it highlighted how uh, Carrier's business doesn't have a lot of ways to innovate other than being cheaper, uh, and that Carrier, despite some of the political rhetoric, will continue to uh, ride the globalization wave. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, the furnace industry, industry Lisa, it's, uh, the furnace, while it's evolved over the years, is still a pretty uh, basic appliance. It's not like, um, you know, Apple has a secret phone that can outdo Samsung or vice versa. Uh, they're all pretty much the same. And so people rely uh, mostly on the people who, uh, the contractors and retailers who sell the furnaces. That's, that's where they find the competition. And of course, people look for the lowest price from the most reliable workers. So that puts the, the manufacturers in the position of, of having to build as, as good a product as they can, but keeping prices low. And there are certain things they cannot control, the price of steel, the price of aluminum, the price of copper, et cetera. Um, but they can't control their labor, labor costs. For one thing. And so you can go seek lower, much lower labor costs, for instance, by going to Mexico, where many of the furnace and air conditioner makers have gone. Yeah, you, you highlighted in your article that uh, carriers unionized workers in Indianapolis are paid on average about $23 an hour. That compares to about $3 an hour uh, for their Mexican counterparts. How big of a proportion of the cost of carrier furnaces comes from that labor? Well, we don't know exactly, Lisa, but um, we do have information suggests that labor is somewhere between 20 and 30 percent of the cost of the furnace. And so, you know, that's that's a pretty sizable chunk. Whereas, for instance, on an elevator, uh, United Technologies also builds Otis elevators. Labor only represents about 3 percent of the cost. And so you can eat some higher wages, you know, wage levels there when it's a less of a, a big percentage of, of your overall cost. You know, another thing that you highlighted that I thought was really interesting was that most of Carrier's key rivals, we're talking about Lennox International, Ingersoll Rand, Ream Manufacturing, and Nortec, all manufacture most of their products outside of the U.S. Have they come under political pressure to keep factories here or move jobs back? 
No, well, they still manufacture quite a bit here, but they've also moved quite a bit uh, to Mexico in particular, and they buy a lot from other countries. But um, the answer to your question is no. Uh, They've come under no political pressure. And interestingly, when I called those companies for some help with this story, they wanted nothing to do with it. Were you surprised? Uh, No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, When you talk to employees in Indianapolis, what did they think would be the solution? Because clearly, I mean, it's nice to keep a factory open, but longer term, the globalization wave isn't going away so quickly. Well, the United Steelworkers, who represent those workers, um, they have some uh, pretty specific ideas. Um, you know, they, they would be in favor of, of, of some of President Trump's own proposals or his own ideas for uh, levying uh, border taxes on imports, for making other, other countries uh, who, are, or, who are taking our jobs pay more money to get the products sent back to here. Um, of course, they're big on currency fluctuations and how China has supposedly manipulated its currency to give itself an advantage in trade. And, and the steelworkers and other unions, for that matter, are big on those ideas. And President Trump has endorsed some of them. Brian Greeley, thank you so much for joining us. A really fascinating story that really highlights the broader issue uh, that goes beyond uh, one company and one factory. Brian Greeley is Business Week reporter, and he spoke with us from Chicago. Yesterday, President Trump signed an executive order to roll back climate change policies that were implemented under former President Barack Obama. Uh, This will have pretty widespread ramifications, but in particular for power plant carbon regulations. And to get more details on what this may mean, let's bring in Rob Barnett. He's senior energy policy analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Rob, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, So what are the implications for power plant carbon regulations that were, I guess, tightened under under former President Obama, but had been in place before that, right? Well, the basic answer is we just don't know yet. The timing of the announcement yesterday has been expected for a while. We, we knew President Trump was going to take some of this kind of action. And yesterday's executive order gives us a little bit of a sense of their playbook. But frankly, it's going to take years in all likelihood for everything to play out. So most immediately yesterday, uh, lawyers for the Department of Justice asked the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals to uh, suspend an ongoing case against the clean power plan, basically to send it back to the Environmental Protection Agency so that they could revisit the rule and craft it in a way that's uh, certainly more lenient for electric utilities and folks who want to use coal. But there's no guarantee that the courts are going to do that. And ultimately, the U.S. court system is going to be the arbiter of what happens. And the courts are pretty slow-moving entities. So I think it's going to be a while before we have a true sense of what's actually going to happen. Well, uh, can you just break down what we're talking about with some of these uh, regulations that have uh tamped down the release of carbon by coal mining companies, for example, in uh, West Virginia, Kentucky, Pennsylvania, and others. I mean, specific companies, specific actions, what have these regulations meant? Absolutely. So the grand irony of all of this is that the Clean Power Plan was actually stayed by the Supreme Court. So it's actually not in effect right now. 
many of the coal regulations that are that have been drivers of coal retirements and the decline in coal use actually relate to conventional pollutants. So mercury requirements, ozone requirements, sulfur, nitrogen oxides, I could go on. There's a whole portfolio of those regulations that nobody is talking about. President Trump administration is not looking at rescinding any of those. And those have been a big driver of the decline in coal use we've seen here in the United States over the past decade. Now, the Clean Power Plan, if it were to stay on the books, would sort of continue that trend into the next decade if it were to stay around. But broadly, in the near term, it's these other regulations, in our view, that have been really the key driver of the big changes we've seen in the coal industry. Well, so you talk with a lot of people and lobbyists and regulators. And I mean, is there any push to get some of these other regulations overthrown or addressed by President Trump's administration? It's certainly something that many folks in the coal industry would like to see. But to go back and touch some of those other regulations, which we view as somewhat more important here in the near term, uh, you have to rewrite the Clean Air Act. Congress is very busy. This is not something we expect to see uh, serious efforts on in the Congress. So really, we're likely in a situation where we've still got all of these conventional pollutant requirements. And so maybe there's some relief on carbon. But in our broadest assessment, we think it's going to be very difficult to reboot the coal industry. And you've got to keep in mind that a big factor isn't even policy related. Cheap shale natural gas has has really been giving coal a run for its money, and that's a big part of the narrative. I mean, we continue to track and observe coal power plant retirements even since Trump won election last November. Well, you know, I'm looking at Peabody Shares right now, which is a big coal company, coal producer. Uh, shares are up, you know, more than 23 percent today. Uh, you know, you have to think it has something to do with the news that President Trump is trying to make good on his promises to make coal great again and to and to bring back a lot of these energy sources that have been beaten down. I mean, what are what are these shareholders seeing uh, that 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 you're not maybe uh, with respect to how promising these uh, the rollback really could be. Well, it's simply the way markets work. I mean, I think there's clearly a sense of optimism on the executive order and and the, the news that we saw yesterday. But keep in mind that there are 22 gigawatts of announced coal retirements here in the United States. About eight percent of the capacity in the U.S. Utilities say they're going to retire. And by the way, <clears throat> that hasn't slowed down since President Trump was elected. Uh, a big plant out in Arizona, the Navajo plant, earlier this year in February said they were going to retire that plant. It's the, one of the largest in the U.S. And in, a, in an Ohio, a state that Trump won, uh, the uh, Dayton Empower and Light Utility said just a week ago they're going to retire their J.M. Stewart plant and their Killen Coal plant. So we continue to see these big shifts in the type of fuel that utilities want to use to generate electricity. And ultimately, the big driver of coal demand is power sector use. And so if utilities are switching to other fuels, it's going to be hard to see uh, demand right. out there for coal, uh, You know, even if there is a rollback of the clean power plan or uh, right. some of the other greenhouse gas rules that President Trump has been targeting. Rob Barnett, thank you so much for joining us. Fascinating as always. Rob Barnett is Senior Energy Policy Analyst for Bloomberg in intelligence.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.